You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's episode of Evidence and Answers, Pat will continue on with his series in the Bible and interview Dr. Norman Geisler as they discuss the inerrancy of the Bible. Here's Pat now with part one. You're listening to Evidence and Answers where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ. And my guest today is Dr. Norman Geisler. And if you're familiar with Christian apologetics, then you know the name, Dr. Norman Geisler. He has taught many of the top apologists and defenders of the faith, including men like Ravi Zacharias, J.P. Moreland, Ron Rhodes, many others. Dr. Geisler has served as professor of philosophy and apologetics at several graduate schools, including Trinity Evangelical, Dallas Theological Seminary, Veritas Seminary, and he served as the founder and president of Southern Evangelical Seminary. He is a prolific author, having written close to a hundred books, and has debated some of the top scholars from all over the world, including atheists, skeptics, liberals, Buddhists, and a host of top scholars from all over the world. Many of us would consider him one of the great defenders of the faith of our generation. So it is a great privilege for us to have with us today Dr. Norman Geisler. Dr. Geisler, welcome to the show. It's my privilege to be with you, Dr. Zuckeran, and uh, I remember the wonderful times we had there in the islands uh, with you and looking forward to this uh, radio program. Yes, you know, you have always been one of the top, most popular speakers out here, and it was a great privilege to have you here, and people still talk about you here, and uh, they still replay some of the uh, excerpts from the couple conferences you were here. Well, Dr. Geisler, we're talking about a very important subject today, the inerrancy of Scripture. But, Dr. Geisler, you state when it comes to our understanding of the Bible, Christians should hold to three key doctrines regarding the Bible. Inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy of the Bible. Explain these three key terms for us. Well, inspiration means that it's breathed out by God from Second Timothy 3.16, where it uses the word theopneustos, uh, all scripture is God-breathed, meaning that it's breathed out of the mouth of God. And uh, Matthew 4 tells us that every word of scripture comes from the mouth of God. Inerrancy also in, is involved in infallibility. Inerrancy means the Bible does not err, and infallibility means the Bible cannot air so all are true now you state these three doctrines are connected like a three-legged stool tell us why is it important that christians hold to all three of these doctrines regarding the bible well if you held to inspiration uh, that the uh, the scriptures are god breathed uh, and you said but there are errors in it then god breathed out errors and that's impossible for god to breathe out errors it's impossible for god to lie hebrew six eighteen or titus 1 2 the God who cannot lie. So they're related, and uh, you you deny one, and the other two are entailed as well. Now, some will say, well, God used human writers 
to write his word, and humans err, so why couldn't there be errors in the Bible? Well, it's a false uh, syllogism, our logical formula. Uh, it has false premise in it. God, uh, uh, the Bible doesn't err, uh, uh, to be sure, but human beings don't always err either. They, they usually err, and they customarily do, but they don't always. So in order for it to be valid, you'd have to say, Human beings always err. The Bible is written by human beings, therefore the Bible errs. I can write an inerrant book right now. Page 1, 1 plus 1 is 2. Page 2, 2 plus 2 is 4. Page 3, 3 plus 3 is 6. There are inerrant phone books where every number is right, you know, or inerrant math books where every problem is done correctly. And God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick just, a stick just because the... Uh, Bible is written by human beings doesn't mean it has to err because he can guide the human beings so they don't err. John fourteen twenty six and John sixteen thirteen says he'll uh, lead them his disciples into all truth and, and bring to their remembrance whatever he uh, taught them. So God guided them and preserved them from error when they were writing his word. Now, some will say, well, the doctrine of inerrancy is kind of a recent newcomer here to the scene. But what is the basis of the doctrine of inerrancy? It's actually got a long history, doesn't it? Yes, it does. The basis is really biblical. There are two biblical truths. God can't err is a biblical truth, Hebrews 6.18, Titus 1, 2, John 17.17. 17. And the Bible is the Word of God, John 10.35, and numerous other scriptures talks about the Bible being the Word of God. God. So if God can't err, and the Bible is the Word of God, then it logically follows that the Bible can't err. So the basis is really biblical. In addition to that, it's reflected throughout the history of the Church. The great confessions of the Christian Church confessed uh, the inerrancy of the Bible. The great fathers of the Christian Church uh, did. So there's a constant history of that biblical doctrine from the beginning, from the first century right on through to our time, affirming the inerrancy of the Bible. Now, would you consider this an essential doctrine of the Christian faith? I mean, is it as important as the Trinity and, and the resurrection of Christ? Yes, uh, in Essentials, Unity, and Non-Essentials, Liberty, and All Things, Charity, the famous trilogy. And the Bible is one of the essentials. And the reason it's a fundamental doctrine is because all other doctrines are based on it. Everything we know about uh, God and Christ and salvation is based on the Bible. So if the Bible isn't true, then the foundation for all other doctrines crumbles as well. Someone said the Bible is the fundamental of the fundamentals, and if the fundamental of the fundamentals isn't fundamental, what is fundamental? The answer is fundamentally nothing. So we can't give up on the energy of the Bible because it's crucial to all the rest of Christianity. Now, when it comes to inerrancy, what is, you know, the definition of it as the evangelical position on Well, it simply means it's uh, without error, but more technically, uh, the evangelical position is what's called the full inerrancy or complete inerrancy. That is that the whole Bible is inerrant. God can't err in anything, he says. So, if the Bible is the Word of God, then it can't err in anything. If it affirms something about geography or history or science, it's true because God can't make any mistakes. Uh, he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. And an all-knowing being, 
can't make a mistake on anything. Now, that is a classical evangelical view, but there seems to be other definitions of inerrancy out there, what might be called the neo-evangelical view, or limited inerrancy. What's the well, difference there? Well, the difference is the uh, limited inerrancy says the Bible is limited in its inerrancy just to doctrinal and spiritual matters, but it's not inerrant when it talks about science or history. But as I just said, if God is the author of Scripture and the whole of the Bible is the Word of God and God is omniscient, then it can't err on any topic because God can't make a mistake. Now, some will say, well, the Bible is not a, a science kind of textbook. How can we say that when it comes to areas of things like science that it would be without error? The Bible is not a scientific textbook, but whenever it speaks on science, it speaks accurately. It's not a history textbook, but whenever it speaks on history, it's, it's accurate because God is the author of all of Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. And he said he would lead his disciples into all truth. So whatever it addresses, it has to address truly and honestly and uh, factually correct. Now, you state that the historic view of the Church has been the view of unlimited inerrancy. When did this neo-evangelical view of limited inerrancy begin to develop? The neo-evangelical view of limited inerrancy really began in the 19th century, and it was addressed by B.B. Warfield. He wrote a book called Limited Inspiration, on it addressing it and it's become common since then and it was very strongly held by professors like Jack Rogers of uh, Fuller uh, Seminary and it really precipitated the um, International Council on Biblical Energy where 300 scholars from all over the country and world got together and said look we gotta draw a line to sand here these people are denying the historic biblical position that we got to take a stand for it. And so in 1978, the Chicago conference, they made a statement on uh, energy has become the standard in seminaries ever since. Now, what do you think caused the rise of, of the neo-evangelical view of inerrancy? Well, a lot of things, accepting uh, contemporary scientific uh, views. It's all post-Darwinian. It's all after 1859, Darwin wrote on the origin of species, and so the influence of evolution and higher criticism on the Bible that followed from that is really the rise of that. And so it was a convenient way for some people to say, well, look, uh, let's just limit it to uh, spiritual and doctrinal matters and say it's not necessarily inerrant on these other matters, and so we can accept evolution and we can accept higher criticism and still believe in inerrancy. Now, what would be the danger of holding to this neo-evangelical view of limited inerrancy? Well, the first danger is it's a, uh, it's a direct insult on uh, the character of God because God can't hear in the Bible is uh, God's word. And secondly, it's contrary to the authority of Christ because Christ affirmed uh, the inerrancy of the uh, Bible. He said the scriptures cannot be uh, broken. He said, you do err not knowing the scriptures, which by implication don't err in Matthew 22 to the Sadducees, and it's a direct attack on the ministry of the Holy uh, Spirit. So to deny the inerrancy of the Bible, you have to deny the authenticity of God the Father, 
the authority of God the Son and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which makes it exceedingly important. Now, some will argue and say, well, you know, I hold to the Bible as authority morally and spiritually, but issues like Jonah and the whale and yeah, other so, issues, yeah, you know, I, I could view them as allegorical or not necessarily historical, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and they're more minor issues. They say that very thing, but they forget that then they have to deny the authority of Christ because Jesus affirmed that uh, Jonah was literally swallowed by a large fish. Jesus also affirmed that there was Adam and Eve, and that they were created by God. And a lot of the things that uh, modern critics accept were directly contrary to what Jesus affirmed. So to deny the energy of the Bible, you have to deny the authority of Christ. Yeah, you know, and that makes a lot of sense, you know, for us to understand that there's actually a new definition of inerrancy out there, the neo-evangelical one, because I've gone to many churches. I even went to a Christian college that said they held to the belief of inspiration and inerrancy, yet they taught us that there were errors in the Bible and that things like Sodom and Gomorrah and Adam and Eve and the Nephilim and, you know, never really happened and, and that they're more allegorical. Yet I was getting really confused because I would ask the prophet, well, don't you believe in inerrancy? And they said, absolutely. What I say in response to that is, if inerrancy means the Bible is God-breathed, the have news to us, then how can God breathe out an error? You're, you're attributing an error to God. In order to deny the inerrancy of the Bible, you have to deny the inerrancy of God, because the Bible is God's Word. And if God can't err and the Bible is God's Word, then the Bible cannot err. And if the Bible does have an error, or even some errors, uh, then God himself has made mistakes. Now, you state that most Christian colleges and many Christian graduate schools do not hold to the classical unlimited inerrancy view. Is this correct? Well, it's true. A lot of Christian colleges don't hold to it because they're influenced by contemporary biblical criticism and contemporary views. And these contemporary views have now for uh, over 100 years now been eating away at the doctrine of inerrancy, and a lot of them have found it an easy way to make peace with their culture. And if culture is contrary to Christianity, then you're going to be making peace with that which is contrary to your faith. Yeah, you know, I noticed that, you know, there are Christian denominations that held to the doctrine of inerrancy and, you know, a few decades ago abandoned that. There are seminaries and Christian colleges that held to the doctrine of inerrancy and suddenly it's no longer in their doctrinal statement. Do you say that it's because of the pressure coming from the culture and the ideas of the culture? Uh, absolutely, and you'll find that a lot of Christian colleges have drifted away because uh, they've gotten into liberal arts and uh, into the contemporary culture, and their professors went away to these schools, and they got PhDs in order to get academic acceptability, and what happens is they compromised uh, doctrinal integrity for academic respectability. The good news is that the 300 scholars in 1978 of the ICBI, the International Council of Biblical Energy, took a stand on it, and many seminaries accepted it, and the whole Southern Baptist Convention was brought back into orthodoxy. They had drifted away from it by the stand that was being taken by people and so one denomination, the largest Protestant denomination in the world, the Southern Baptists, was brought back from the precipice of 
of denying energy by Paige Patterson and many other people who took a strong stand and who stood with us and the other 300 scholars in Chicago. And so the, the good news is the seminaries reversed course in many cases. The colleges didn't. And so we lost many colleges, but we retained a lot of the seminaries and brought some back. Well, that's encouraging to hear. You know, it seems like once the doctrine of inerrancy falls, and usually that seems to be one of the first that a denomination or a institution would surrender. And after that, it seems like other doctrines, just like a domino effect, begin to fall after that. Well, it makes sense, you know. If the, if the if inspiration is limited to only certain areas of the Bible, then what's going to happen? What's going to happen is you're going to say, well, here's an area that's not essential. This is a peripheral matter, so you're going to deny that, and then you're going to have to say, well, where do I draw the line? You know, like one recent scholar, Mike Lacona, drew the line in a, in a passage in Matthew 26 where Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And right in the same passage, in the same pericope, as they would say, it goes on to say, and as a result, uh, many of the saints were resurrected. They say, well, you don't have to take that as uh, inerrant. We, we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, but we don't believe that these other saints were literally well, where do you draw the line? And the same scholar, Michael Cohn, in his book on the resurrection, says, well, sometimes we don't know where to draw the line. Yeah, that's quite disturbing. You know, I see a lot here in Hawaii, we're battling the whole gay marriage issue, and there's a whole host of churches that are coming out in defense of gay marriage. And when we point to them certain passages on homosexuality, Romans 1, or the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, or 1 Corinthians 6, they tend to to dismiss that and say, well, that's either cultural or Paul meant something else, or, well, that's, you know, like Sodom and Gomorrah, that story really never happened. It's more allegorical. And so it seems like once you deny inerrancy, you can dismiss doctrines that are inconvenient to you like that. Absolutely. You gotta, you've got to eliminate a lot of the Bible. Leviticus chapter 18, along with First Corinthians 6 and Romans 1 and Genesis 18 and all of these passages in the Bible, they're very clear and emphatic. They've, by the way, they've discovered Sodom and Gomorrah. If they think it isn't literally true, they ought to go with uh, our professor of uh, archaeology who has unearthed the real Sodom and Gomorrah and their bodies severed right at the uh, belt. There's material that uh, had to come from outer space because there's nothing on Earth that can uh, produce heat that to produce this uh, certain rock that is produced. I mean, it's, it's been archaeologically confirmed. Wow, it's fascinating. Now, is inerrancy an issue that we should break fellowship on as brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, you don't have to believe in, er in inerrancy to be saved or to be a Christian. You have to believe in it to be a consistent Christian. So inerrancy is a test for evangelical consistency, not a test for evangelical authenticity. Uh, you can be saved and born again and go to heaven without believing it, but you can't do that consistently because if you believe in inerrancy and you deny part of inerrancy, then how do you know the parts that have to do with your salvation are uh, true as well? So you're undermining uh, your own faith by doing it, but I'd rather see people inconsistently saved than consistently lost. Yeah, well, that's a good way to put it, you know. 
Now, some issues are hot-button issues, and uh, they don't violate the doctrine of inerrancy, but some people say that they do. You know, for example, you know, some popular hot-button issues are uh, old earth, young earth creationist view. Some people say if you don't hold to a literal six twenty-four hour day, 6,000-year-old universe, then you've denied the inerrancy of the Bible. Or if you don't hold to a worldwide flood, if you hold to a regional flood view, you deny the inerrancy of the Bible. So there's some hot button issues that people say, if you don't hold to this particular point, you've denied the inerrancy of the Bible. Aren't, aren't there some hot button issues like that out there that we could have different interpretations? Well, I, absolutely. There's a difference between inspiration and interpretation. And uh, the doctrine of inerrancy doesn't say that every interpretation that we have of the Bible is is correct. It just says that the Bible is inspired and everything in it is true. What the particular truth is, you're going to have to discover by a correct interpretation of the uh, Bible. And that's important, too, but it's not as important as the doctrine of inerrancy, because the doctrine of inerrancy is the foundation for everything that we know about the Bible. It's the foundation for the creeds that confess that there's one God, that Christ died, that he rose from the dead. is the foundation of our faith. It's the, it's the foundation of our salvation. So we can't give up on the doctrine of inerrancy. But on the other hand, we shouldn't uh, demand that every interpretation that uh, every Christian has of every passage is going to be without error because uh, interpretation is a human thing and we can err, whereas inspiration and energy is a divine thing and God can't err. Yeah, I guess the question then is, when is one's interpretation of the scripture jeopardizing the doctrine of inerrancy? Well, I, I, one's interpretation of scripture is jeopardizing inerrancy when he interprets the Bible to be teaching limited inerrancy, that's for sure, because it under, undermines it. Uh, when he denies one or more of the fundamentals of the faith, and they're uh, stated in the early creeds of the uh, Christian Church, and they're logically foundational for all of the doctrines that make salvation possible. So when it comes to the essentials of the faith, uh, and essentials unity, and non-essentials liberty, and then all things charity. Yeah, so give us an example, you kind of briefly alluded to one, where one's interpretation of Scripture would be jeopardizing the doctrine of inerrancy. Well, uh, if you, in, say, for example, took an allegorical interpretation of Scripture, you say, well, the Bible speaks allegorically. Well, then how do I know it's not speaking allegorically when it speaks about Adam and Eve? They weren't literally true, and the New Testament says they were, in uh, Matthew 19 and many other passages. Or if they say, it's allegorically, you say, well, how about Jesus' death and resurrection? If you take that to be an allegory, then you can't be saved, because the Bible says clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ be not risen, our faith is in vain, we're still in our sins, and we're of all men the most miserable. Yeah, now, there are alleged errors or contradictions in the Bible. What do we do when we come across what seems to be a difficulty here, an alleged error or contradiction? How do we approach this, being consistent with the doctrine of inerrancy here? In our book, When the Critics Ask, which is now called The Big Book of Bible Difficulties, we have a whole chapter on that. Approach it just the way a scientist approaches nature. 
There are problems uh, that scientists have in understanding nature. They once didn't understand how a bumblebee could fly, but they kept studying. They didn't say, hey, there's contradictions in nature and give up studying nature. The, their area is now, how does life live on thermal vents in the depth of the sea? It's too hot for them to live, but it does, they do live. So you approach it the same way scientists do. There are difficulties, but a difficulty doesn't mean a contradiction. You keep studying. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed part one of Pat's interview with Dr. Norman Geisler as they discuss the inerrancy of the Bible. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on the Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You will also find we have a wide variety of resources available for you, including articles and audio for you to listen or to download. Join us again next time on the air or online for more evidence and answers.